This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the choice of today's creative generation. Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain coming to you from Sundance 2020 with another one of our roundtables. This is the Cinematographer's Roundtable. We actually ended up doing so many... There were so many interested cinematographers that we ended up doing two roundtables. This is the first of two. And uh, roundtables are a really great opportunity to get a bunch of people together to talk about how they landed the projects that got them there, what they're noticing, changing about the industry, what they're enjoying about the festival. So I hope you enjoy this one. Hey, this is Charles Hain here with No Film School at Sundance 2020. We're doing the first of two cinematographers roundtables. I'm sitting here at a table with six cinematographers who have projects here at Sundance this year. So if you guys could just introduce yourselves, starting on my right, and who you are and what project you are here with. My name is Kenny Soleimanagic. I'm here with a short film called Three Deaths. My name is Carlos Rossini, and I'm here with a film called Vivos uh, by Ai Weiwei. My name is Wolfgang Held. I'm here with two films that I shot parts of. One is called Boys State, and the other one is called Rebuilding Paradise by Ron Howard. I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez. I'm here with I Care You With Me, Heidi Wins. I'm Jenny Morello. I'm the cinematographer of Us Kids, and I also shot a little bit of Rebuilding Paradise. Um, Eric Bronco. I'm here with The 40-Year-Old Version. Oh, yeah, The 40-Year-Old Version. Uh Sorry, I didn't say something about everybody else's thing, but Eric was the last person, so I could be like, oh, yeah, that's on my list of things I'm excited to see. Um, I, I'm aware a lot of people got here already. Usually in these roundtables, we talk about what people have seen, but it's really early in the festival, and I know a lot of you just got here, so we're not going to do that. But, uh, you know, roundtables are always awkward at the beginning, but if we can, like, it'll flow better as we go. But if we could kick off with, like, how you ended up getting attached to the project that you got on, because that's always a question people wonder, like, how did it come to be that you were on this movie that ended up going to Sundance? There's no obligation to, like, go in a circle. I'm actually, like, I'm going to actually start with Carlos and be like, how did you end up working with Ai Weiwei? Because that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh I went to Mexico to visit a museum that was offering a showing for him. Uh, and he was deciding and he got involved in knowing the subject of the documentary, which is the 43 student that disappeared in the state of Guerrero. And he, he immediately got interested in making a film about it. So he was in contact with a couple of producers that are a friend of mine. and. They start introducing him people and uh, he didn't like. So I was finishing a project and I use, I, I film in difficult places and I'm a DP and a director. So they, they decide that that was the moment for us to talk. So we met by Skype a couple of times and then we managed to form a team to do Oh, that's awesome. It, uh, which museum was it? Uh, MOAC, uh, University of Contemporary Arts in the, the UNAM, the University Museum in oh. Mexico City. Amazing museum. Awesome. Yeah, Mexico City has a lot of amazing museums. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I think the... I think Carlos Slim's one's a little overrated, personally. If I can just say something that is a little bit yeah. controversial. I was a little disappointed. We can agree with that. Okay. <laughs> All right, so maybe it's not controversial. Um, all right, so it was a very traditional way, like unconventional, like a someone who doesn't, you don't think of as being a filmmaker, but a very traditional process of like, they went out, they found producers, it was producers you'd worked with in the past, and so it was a very traditional introduction. 
Yeah, something like that. Uh, I actually, I never work with them, but uh, I'm a producer, so I work with them in different things. They used to be in, f in festivals, the producers. So we met before and I made different films. And they introduced me because they were like, he was looking for some something really abstract in his words. So he saw the films I shot and he was like, okay, now we're talking. Gotcha. So you've now said you're a director, you're a cinematographer, and you're a producer. I'm no, sorry. No, 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 it's 2020. <laughs> Everybody does everything. Like, how many people at this table are 100% pure DPs and they do nothing but shoot? I am, yeah. Oh, gotcha. So about three. And then the, other, me. <laughs> the other three people at the table shoot but also do other things? Could you guys talk about I, that? I mostly work as a DP, but I'm currently starting to uh, direct my first feature doc. Oh, awesome. And then... Yeah, I, um, I'm, I mean, I'm primarily a DP. My, I have kind of a side hustle directing concerts, um, live concerts. Oh, gotcha. Which is like very different from being... A, like, it's related, but it's not like the same at all. Uh, it's similar. It's, it's managing people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-hyphenates is sort of the modern career. In a lot of ways. I, sometimes I wish I only do one thing, but it's the, I get interested in many projects at the same time, and I do I do them. <laughs> yeah, a project it's comes like up. <laughs> and then Juan Pablo, how did you end up joining on your project? Well, Heidi was planning a doc in Mexico, and it was a, about uh, two characters that couldn't leave the, the state, so she needed like, another unit in Mexico. She was going to travel to Mexico, and she needed a DP. I was considered to be the one, but I couldn't at that at that moment. And after I think two years, I got a call like she wanted to talk to you about the feature film, the narrative film about the same subject. But and we started to Skype and got into deep conversations about the theme and how to shoot it and how would it be to shoot a narr narrative coming from a director that it's used to sh shoot only docs. So that's when I got in basically. Oh, gotcha. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, Wolfgang, you have two projects at, that are both here. Yeah, I think the more interesting story is the Texas Boys State. I was actually hired by another cameraman, a friend of mine. I have this camera collective in New York. There's six of us. Um, there's two women and, and, and four, four guys, and we all shoot documentary. We have fiction background. And this film, Texas Boy State, my friend Torsten, who founded this camera collective with me, he and Torsten Tilo, he, he basically asked me and some of other camera collective members to come along to do a variety film where each of us took one of the characters of this event of five days. I shot a whole documentary in five days of these 17-year-old kids running through um, the Texas Boy State um, event where they make a mock government and uh, elect governors and they try to understand the political process. So every, every, every one of our collective members that was there, four of our six came and two other people um, took one character and we put a mic on them and followed them. And, and at some point they intercrossed and, and who made it and who didn't and why. And, and so that's sort of the reason I came in to that project. So Torsten had worked with Jesse Moss, the director, and uh, he asked our camera collective members to come. Well, and that's nice because you guys all have an understanding of each other. So it's not necessarily something you end up on projects sometimes where there's six operators or whatever, and you're not necessarily in alignment, but you guys all actually know each other and work together presumably pretty often. How long has Camera Collective been around? We've been around for five years now, I guess. And we all sort of love Verite. We hate reality TV and we love Verite, you know, yeah. documentary. So that's a fine line. And I think that's why we wanted to do this together. So we're a Verite team. Awesome. All right. That's very cool. 
And then Jenny? Well, one of them, I thought Wolfgang and I are on the same project, but um, I think it's funny, like it was like January of 2018, it was like right after Sundance and I was having tea in New York with the director of our film, just because we were trying to figure out a way to work together. And she was obsessed with making, she had a project in the works that was gonna take place in Florida. So I think it's just weird because she happened to be there when the shooting had happened at the school. So that's sort of kind of how it happened. I mean, it's like a, you know, it's documentaries. Yeah. It's like, you know. They, they, they evolve. Yeah. But how had you originally met that director? Um, I think she, we, you know, we all kind of know each other in the industry. So I think she had been trying, we were planning on working together on something. Yeah. Eric? Uh, I think uh, Rada and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, we met at a festival in Philly called Black Star in t- uh, 2014. Uh, and then actually we, I was here for the first time in 2017 with a short film I had shot. Um, and we kind of ended up hanging out like a good amount of the weekend. Um, and so, yeah, I got the call for, uh, I, think she had all, I think she had seen Clemency also. Oh, um, cool. And kind of knowing me and then seeing that, she was like, okay. All right. Um, Cool. Kenny? Uh, well, I met uh, the director of the of Three Deaths. I met him socially a few years ago, and he had actually been in production of a feature. And um, we kind of stayed in touch as friends and then um, slowly started working together on little couple-day kind of loose documentary kind of things. And um, a couple years ago, we moved in together we, like into like this apartment that sort of is like a little factory. You know, there's always kind of something going on. And um, the genesis of this came when something else didn't come through. And we kind of, it was winter time last year. And we we're like, well, many things came together. And we had time, we had resources, and kind of just jumped into it. Okay. All right. So now a little more of a freewheeling question. Like, how have you guys noticed life as a cinematographer changing in the last couple of years? There's a few things I've noticed where things are getting different on film sets. Like, I feel like uh, angry crew members are less tolerated than they used to be even two or three years ago. Like, people having ridiculous outbursts is just something that, like, the industry is changing their opinions about. Obviously, Me Too is changing the way a lot of things are handled on set. So, like, what are you guys noticing as the last couple of years gone by, that things are different or changing, or maybe nothing has changed. Maybe it feels exactly the same as it did a couple of years ago. To me, for example, technically speaking, is a lot of lightweight equipment, so cameras are getting uh, smaller and more light, and also the, the the lighting equipment are the output is bigger with a smaller size, and and they're not heavier anymore. So you can do a feature with few things now, and it's easier and it's uh, cheaper, and so. It's like some sort of democracy about the use of equipment, which is good because now you hear more voices than before, I think. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's very important because, I mean, I've received calls from very experiment uh, directors, but also from very newer directors that have a very interesting voice because they want to try and they don't have, you know, like this um, experience of doing it in the old way with all structures. So... also, when you start to work in, for example, with artists that jump into into visuals and into audio audiovisuals, it starts to make like a, a softened edges between how you should work, and that's very interesting to me. You know, like for example, I I did a, a movie with a, an artist mm-hmm. that is more into you know like museum stuff, 
and he asked me for some aesthetic that I wasn't used to and 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 that's very interesting and we had to work with almost nothing as equipment because it was a we had to to deliver this movie with with the budget of a piece of art which in this case was just a, a little and to me having equipment that is less heavy and cheaper makes an, a really good opportunity to do great stuff awesome just picking on the on, on the crew I, f I find i mean i do both fiction narrative films and and documentary i find that at least in my world the the, the fiction equipment has gotten smaller i mean i've done two features now with only practicals and available light except for night exteriors and i, I love working that way where i just basically don't use movie lights at all anymore um, so that reduces some of the crews, and I find the documentaries, at least the ones that I'm going with, they're, they're getting slightly larger. Cool. They often have a second camera person. There's a drone in the air. You have a movie going around. All that stuff's relatively new, I think, for me anyway. The way I used to shoot documentaries on that zoom lens, on those heavy cameras, and now mm -hmm. it's all prime lenses. Uh, so the whole language has changed, and that affects the crews. So when when, when I go to uh, documentaries, crews are often almost like small fiction crews of like eight, nine people in the field. And the, the narrative crews that I've worked with, they've gone down to like 20, 30 people. Yeah, filming, whereas you used to think of Doc as three yeah. or four. Yeah. Say again. You used to think of Doc as like a three or four person crew. It'd be right. very common in a Doc. But that's sort of inching up. Yeah, so it's morphing, and I think it's good to also lose the boundaries of documentary and fiction. And that's what I was always loving, because it's it's happening now in, in the language. Yeah. And I think it should happen in the films even more. That we just, like, there's so many you know great fiction films that are based on real people, and there's so many great documentaries that are sort of very stylized, and it should just be films, you know. This is, this yeah, is it is sort of an artificial dichotomy between the two. Yeah. I always have been interested in this kind of, if I'm making a... I don't do many fiction films. I did two feature films uh, that are fiction, but the reality component is bigger than ever. This is why I don't do so much feature films until I did. I, I shot one 12 years ago, and I shot another one two years ago before Weiwei film. And that piece was really interesting because it was with a big, big component of reality and how to put the characters in reality, how to move them around. And talking about what you were proposing, uh, I believe that I mostly as a DP, I work with women directors, mostly. Um, it, it hasn't changed for me because I'm in, in, in sets that they are ruled by, by women. So it's great. And uh, in the productions I make, we are not tolerating jokes, hard jokes. In Mexico, mm. we joke a lot, like really heavy. And we are not tolerating jokes that they're uh, like aggressive to gender uh, gender. Qualities. I don't know how to say it in English yeah. <laughs> to gender. So, but it's not changing that much because my company were really like you were already there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we are just making an effort to people to not be heavy on jokes. Don't be like that. Mexico is a country that always is having these kind of waves and talking about this since many years. This is kind of a changing, but I don't know in the industry, in the industry size films. I don't know, I make small films. It doesn't matter if it, small production teams, like a documentary is like four people. Uh, mm -hmm. The the chambermaid where we were like seven, <laughs> eight with the actress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was like that. Yeah. So 
maybe Eric can speak to this too, but um, I noticed we shot on 35 millimeter and a few years ago there was a flat spot kind of in technical proficiency and willingness to work with film. You know, especially with the younger crew, they hadn't really come up with it. And the older crew had kind of moved on to a level that you kind of can't afford on the indie level. And they don't really want to work with stuff and kind of the infrastructure and the resources were not really there. And especially in New York, and that has kind of crept back in now. New York Um, has a lab. New York has a lab, finally, and more support for mental houses. And, um, you know, a new generation that's coming up now you know, that is interested in it and exploring it and takes it very seriously and wants to really know it and take pride in kind of adding that to their stable of skills. And, and, but it was hard. It's definitely still hard, you know, and like finding people who are willing to like, like not light off of a monitor or like a gaffer that can work with a light meter and you know, and, and that you could trust and a focus puller who doesn't need to look at a monitor. And, you well, know. and finding a director that understands that video tap doesn't look like the final image. Definitely. That is a big one. <laughs> yeah. Or a producer. Yeah. I mean, we shot, we shot a four year old version on, on 35 mil black and white. Um, but we had a lot of night exteriors and kind of like low light level things. And at our budget level, like it was not really possible to like get a condor up at the end of the block, um, you know, and blast lights down the street, which like, Probably could have done it for a night or two, but also that's not what night in New York looks like, you know, and so I was really trying to be true to that. And so we ended up shooting on 5219, which is like a 500 stop, 500T um, color stock and pushing it two stops, which looks great after you develop it. But the tap is just nothing. Yeah. (laughs) So we might as well not have had There's like one dot of a street light. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like you're seeing the street lights and you're seeing traffic lights and like... You know, people are like, well, where are their faces? And I'm like, you'll see it next week. And, and it, it is interesting seeing the difference, too. I work with some directors who do more comedy stuff, and they're always watching a monitor and rolling through takes. And I think that that's also wonderful and effective. But um, Jay was always looking at the actors, like basically standing right next to the, to the lens, looking at the, at the action or looking away and listening. And um, that's the first time I've ever worked with a director that did that. We're really just like zeroing in on specific things. And it kind of changed the energy of the notes and of the, the day. Well, it changes the energy of space, too. All of a sudden, the actors, the director, and the camera person are all together in the same space, shared together. Whereas a lot of times when the energy goes to Video Village, and Video Village is maybe like a room away or something, it just feels like a very split energy to me. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's like theater. You know what I mean? It's, you know... Very few people enjoy watching a recording of a play, yeah. but when you're in the room, it's magical. Yeah, um, it's the same thing I think with whether a DP operates or you know watches monitor. If a director is in the room or watches off monitor, you know when everyone's in the same room and in the same space, there's things happening that like you can't you you know can't be explained. So has anyone worked with an intimacy coordinator yet this year? All we are talking about at school, we're doing intimacy coordinator workshops. It's like very much. Why don't you tell us about it, Will Brief? I'm curious about it. Yeah, so when I read it in your email, I was like, what it is? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, something yeah. like that. So it is a, it is a brand new job. Yeah, like yeah. two years ago, it wasn't a thing. But now there's intimacy coordinators. And if you are doing an intimate scene, you hire them to come to set. And they help you. It's like having a fight coordinator. They help you yeah. block the scene. They help navigate the whole experience. It is a It is a new and oncoming thing that literally like three years ago, there weren't any. And now they are. And it's increasingly becoming a thing. And we're at Fierstein, like we are like 
requiring you to do a like we're bringing in intimacy coordinators for all the students to do a workshop with before your second year films and if you don't go to the workshop like we're not going to do your second year films like it's going to be part of our training because it is about like you know it's a complicated thing doing like intimate scenes and intimate scenes can mean all sorts of things like in our intimacy guidelines like you know a long hug uh like or if you have a child actor and you're like holding the child actor by the arm like all of those things are Anytime two people have physical contact, there's something involved in that. And some directors are better at navigating it than others, but a director is always going to have all these needs they have. So the same way you bring in a fight coordinator to make sure the actors are safe, because the director might not be the best at worrying about the safety in a fight because they want to get the shot. You bring in an intimacy coordinator to make sure that the actors feel completely safe because the director, even if they're a very sensitive person, has other things they're worrying about on the shoot day. In Mexico, we used to have people that do that. It was in the directorial department, ADs, that Mm -hmm. when I used to work in bigger productions, like in the big industry, like as an AD, and we talked like, who is a good AD for this scene? Who is it? Yeah, it was an AD thing. And we used to work that way, yeah. That's kind of how it worked when I was coming up too, yeah. The AD, or you know what I mean? The AD was generally... Yeah, the you know, responsible to yeah. be like yeah. in the mood, uh, in the respect and everything. Which worked sometimes said. and yeah. sometimes didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is why we make in the curriculum. Oh, uh, that guy is good for those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think also part of it is by having a person who's dedicated, who's like, that is their only job, the performers feel like there's someone that they could go to with any concerns. Whereas, like, you don't always feel like the AD is someone, especially because ADs are very time conscious, conscious. If you're asking a question that might slow things down and you're a performer, the AD might not be the person you want to have that conversation with. Yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, but think- the AD also is responsible for security and, and safety. everything yeah, yeah. So. i mean in the end safety is yeah safety yeah interesting all right well i'm going to keep asking the question every year and eventually some dps will have some fun stories about like because you know it's like things are changing well there's a heightened consciousness i think no yeah. matter what um like in in our project we had for example one shot that was a point of view the actor is on the bed and we had to someone sits beside her and we had to get his point of view and the only way i could do that was effectively to like sit on top of her but it was like you know you have to get into the feeling of what you're doing and communicate be like okay well like it, you know if, if something feels weird just let me know i'm gonna scoot up i'm gonna scoot away in this shot we have to do this and i think just that tone and that like way of communicating so even if there's not an intimacy coordinator on set there's one like in your brain yeah you know and that you're kind of thinking of that and if if you can't afford one which I don't know, maybe yeah. people can't. I think that there should still be like the ethos of one or maybe like a little kind of like set on set speech that someone yeah. gives or something like that, which we also did. And so that really helped. And and even in the absence of a, of a coordinator, you know, you still have to, you'll get a better performance, I think, if you communicate crew member to crew member, yeah. whether it's a, a grip setting a C-stand or, a, you know, a, a sound person putting a lav on talent like all yeah. those things matter especially in the doc world I mean, you know you're going yeah. into a situation where you've never met someone and then you have to put a lav in their shirt and i mean i think it's going to get added to the safety meeting like i hear at big studio levels it is already part of the morning safety meeting it is already part of the like we have the giant meeting before production starts where everybody comes out and we meet with coordinators and like it is just it's becoming part of the culture because film set culture keeps changing Definitely. like film sets feel wildly different than they did in the 90s 
when like there weren't really cell phones yet, except the producers had cell phones, but nobody else did. And it was just a much different atmosphere. I kind of missed that. But I also saw a lot of things on set in the 90s that I was like, whoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me never let that happen on my set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and, you know, as far as like, these are like the way pre-intimacy coordinator days where it's like but it used to be education and like but if you were low on the totem pole it was very much something where you were like i'm like you know the power dynamics of film was you wouldn't really challenge it right like it's still you still wouldn't challenge it i feel like we're getting to a place where i think more people might maybe i definitely remember in the 90s sneaking around the producer told us to dump out this fish tank that was full of fish and so we started to do it, but we couldn't kill all the fish. So we like snuck off and put them in a bag so we could take them back to the store. But we didn't want the producer to see that we weren't killing all the fish. Because, um, yeah, it was... That's it was so crazy. Yeah. Someone told me to do that. This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the Australian pro audio powerhouse making incredible gear for podcasters, vloggers, filmmakers, and musicians. Rode is at the vanguard of innovation for audio solutions for podcasters offering groundbreaking products like the Rodecaster Pro, the world's first fully integrated podcast production studio, and PodMic, the ultimate podcasting microphone. Find out more about how Rode can help you cut through the noise at rode.com slash podcasting. That's R-O-D-E dot com forward slash podcasting. This podcast was recorded using Rode microphones and technology. Founded by a group of independent filmmakers, Small HD has been innovating the on-camera and production monitor industry for an entire decade. It started by creating the first ever HD monitor that could sit on top of a DSLR. Today, its products include the 703 Bolt that has an integrated wireless receiver and a daylight viewable screen. Small HD is in the business of providing real-time confidence for creatives. With an extremely wide range of field monitors, Small HD prides itself on durability and usability. Whether it's paired with a mirrorless camera during a wedding or used for Video Village in Hollywood, Small HD has a monitor for every production. Powerful software tools, a unified user experience, and premium display quality help make small HD monitors the industry standard. Stop wondering if you've nailed the shot. Start having more confidence at the camera with small HD. On camera and production monitors starting at just $299. For more information about small HD products, go to smallhd.com. And then the other big thing, obviously, that's changing a lot is larger sensors, right? In a less fraught, more technical conversation, larger sensors. I've been shooting a lot on the ARRI-LF in the last six months or so. And it's like, it is radically different in feeling in a way that, like, there is a lot more abstract differences than I was expecting there to be as that. So has anybody been moving over to large format? I mean, we've got a couple 35 millimeters, so that's traditional size. Um, have anybody had large format shoots lately? Or? I'm about to shoot my, my next feature film in the Alexa LF. Oh, nice. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm not, I really don't like the new lenses. So The signature primes? I haven't tried the signature because I don't, we don't have it in Mexico. But for example, we, we tried the, the size and, and, and I, I wouldn't like the look. I, I normally go to vintage lenses. My whole feature films yeah. have been into like speed pancreas or super baltars or that kind of stuff. And for this one, I found this double speed pancreas, which were the speed pancreas for Vista Vision. Yeah. So they cover the, 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 the big sensor. They are like uh, three sets in the world. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah three sets amazing. in the world. <laughs> and where, yeah. did, where are you getting this set? From LA. Oh, nice. Yeah, a Mexican, uh, Rodrigo. A Mexican Rodrigo, Rodrigo yeah. Turralde. A yeah. uh, guy has, has this company called La Fin Boutique. Yeah. Started to buy crazily old yeah. glasses when they weren't popular and re- 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 rehousing them. And they have this crazy amount of just 
nice, yeah. <laughs> incredible old lenses. And I tried them like in December, actually during the Thanksgiving. And and they look great with the new sensor. So I'm I'm starting to, to, to figure out how, how they look, how to make make this newer image kind of in, in cinema with with those old glasses to, to make it something new because my movie my new movie is about like exploring the idea of how um, f black and white film looks like so I'm doing it black and white and, and make it like a, um, a moving image you know like if you go to a gallery to see a photograph yeah but something like that explore that idea so the, the bigger sensor give me this like depth of field that you can play with and also it's all exterior with these huge mountains in Oaxaca Mexico too so it's it's really interesting to me to explore this larger sensor yeah um, I have a the new FX y, FX9 Sony, oh yeah and I'm start testing with the set of lenses I have that I have used in four documentaries maybe uh, Nikon AI yes mm -hmm. It's a beautiful set, and people is using it a lot. Jaime just start using it in a big sensor too, and I'm testing. I'm testing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will make a film like I will start in probably four months, like a new documentary from from myself. Uh, but I'm testing because I'm not really sure about many things. The, the lenses I'm sure about because I yeah. I know them. But also, FX9 is sort of an interesting move because you like Doc. You don't really think of as being full frame. You know, you like a smaller sensor in Doc. I still like shooting two thirds yeah. inch on yeah, Doc. Yeah, yeah. But like Sony right. really is convinced that Doc is ready for full frame and that the autofocus is like when you need it, it's going to be there. And it's an interesting. It's interesting to hear you got an FX9. Actually, the focus the thing first person. Is, is really, I think, with the depth of field. I I did a commercial on a Venice this week, and the depth of field thing was really, really crazy because. Yeah, you know, it's like at a, at a, like a forty mil at a two, it's still razor thin. Yeah, and it was like you know I can't imagine how I would carry that into the narrative space where you know you have to tell a story and have information in a frame. Yeah, you know, like a set or other actors or you know like or how to do an indie feature where you're yeah. like I've got to move quickly and I've got a lot of setups in the day and it's like. You know, because Arri LF is, I mean, Arri Mini is the dominant camera of Sundance every year, right? It's always like 60% of the Sundance movies. And and even though there's a Mini LF, I don't know that that's going to change. I think the Mini and then the new Super 35 Arri that's coming out next year are still going to be the Sundance camera because LF is hard on an indie schedule. I, I haven't shot anything large format um, yet, but I have a, a film coming up in the fall that uh, we're looking at large format for specifically for that we um it's kind of like about a character becoming isolated from her environment um and we specifically are thinking about doing lf to be able to like be on her and have the, everything else go away i'm not sure why people are excited about it to be honest because <laughs> like, it's new uh yeah like people are really going crazy for it but uh i haven't really seen it used in a way yet where i'm like okay this is something new i guess parts of joker i think were were great um, I believe that the use of different perspective, more than the depth of field for me, yeah. I do a lot of dog work, so I'm not that much into the race. I, the only thing in focus is this pin. Yeah. No, I'm not in that, but but the, the option of lenses the using to use uh, 28, to use uh, 20, like mm. in the... 
in the yeah. in, in scenes deal. in doc for me is like like inside really of a great. car or something yeah. Like yeah. That. yeah yeah it's amazing because you, i was gonna yeah. say you also get this crazy sense of presence like i shot an 18 millimeter close-up on it on full frame and i was like i just feel more present with you in a way than i do on a on, on, like if it was a 14 and super 35 it'd be like the same field of view but it just doesn't feel there's like something about the gate being bigger that makes me feel closer to the person in an interesting way but but I, yeah but i don't think it's the right it's thing for everything i think, I think anamorphic scratches that itch for me yes you know what i mean so yep. it's interesting like thinking about a lot of the perspective changes and things that people are talking about in lf is just something that in my mind it's like well that's an anamorphic that's an anamorphic yeah. movie yeah yeah but i feel i i, I like more spherical in yeah, yeah, general yeah. so now i'm like okay now yeah, i yeah, can yeah. play with that <laughs> yeah. all right so we've only got a little bit of time left if we want to talk a little bit about like sundance experiences i don't know how many years people have been coming is it anybody's first year at sundance Oh, we are three, three. Please, um, yeah. So, uh, like, what have we seen so far? What have our experiences been so far? Or people who are repeat anything about Sundance that seems different? I haven't seen any film, and I'm discovering the festival, and I'm completely, how you say, confused. I'm confused about the festival because I don't know how to get to make it, to get to the film theater and see a thing. So oh yeah, I will start tomorrow. I just was to the premiere to my film, the Ai Weiwei film, and I'm discovering because I'm overwhelmed of... <laughs> yeah, there's nice. a lot. Yeah, I'm used to more, more used to festivals like Toronto and maybe some European festivals and, than, than this. this is, I was like, okay, and everybody's looking at your badge and saying, oh, hi, how are you? Who are you? And I'm like, I'm shy. It's <laughs> 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 like that. It seems like to me, I notice that there's a lot of stuff that even across documentary across shorts across narrative etc it seems like there's a lot of stuff from all around the world um and that's not just foreign productions i've seen like there's some u.s films that were shot overseas and i think that that's really cool and i don't know how that compares to times in the past but i'm certainly more aware of it now than i ever was and it's interest. i i always think it's cool when people from different places work in new places because you have a perspective that you don't see. Cool. Well, I did want to, can I go back to your first question? You can yeah. go back to anything, yeah. I vote Thank for you. that. <laughs> I vote for that. I mean, like the documentary industry is different, so most of the directors I work with are women. But like, I I don't know, like female DPs don't work as often. So I don't, I don't actually, I think it's like slowly changing, but I don't think it's changed yet. Yeah. So... Just saying. You think it's the beginning of the change? It is. Like, I still work less than everyone else does, right? And I definitely, like, a lot of my female DP friends, we all complain about how we get hired for the same projects. It's like, we need the female DP for the sexual assault film, or we need an all-female crew. But you're not booking the... You're not getting the next Fast and the Furious movie. But that's not documentaries. Like, yeah. you pick projects because they're important to you, and you and you are on them for three years so you have to be invested in the material it's just funny that we all only now get hired for those movies it's like always the all-female crew which is lovely and great and fun but but it's free the work changing feels token maybe right yeah Yeah, it's become that way it's like definitely a sentiment that i think a lot of other people are feeling yeah Yeah, i mean dps of color for sure it's like i'll never shoot a jennifer aniston movie that's not gonna be offered to me yeah I'm trying to remember a Jennifer Aniston movie, but yeah, I guess there are Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. I, I will say, though, in terms of 
uh, crews. I, I used to work more in documentaries, so I haven't had a long crew life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but even just in the last few years, seeing the awareness and interest in having gender and racial equity kind of on, on crews is just even that people are talking about it means that something is changing, like that it's part of the 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 discourse from the hiring perspective. And I don't know if that's token or not. Maybe for some people it might be, but... I think people are more conscious of it, which is great. I also will say, in a plus side, um, there are so many female ACs now. Yeah. And I was a female AC, and I AC'd for Wolfgang. Uh-huh. And there weren't any, like, I didn't, there weren't, I don't have any friends that are my peer, direct peers that were women that were when I was an AC. But now, like, my roster of, like, ACs, like, I don't work with any men. Like, they're all women. So that's So the pipeline incredible. is filling up for it's the future. It's filling up. It's filling, it's coming up, right? And that's the so, farm, that's the bench, really. Yeah, you know, for which the, is fantastic. Yeah. Like, I think it's really, and that's normal for them. Like, they don't, I was talking to a, a girl about this recently, and it's amazing that she had no idea. I mean, I don't think I realized how weird it was that I didn't know any other women at the time when I was an AC. Like, that all my friends were guys. Yeah. And so it's it's really kind of interesting um, that that shift is happening and that they don't realize how special it is, which is good. Yeah, I mean, ideally it's not special. Ideally it's just like normal. It is the normal. Yeah. But you think we're in the very, very, very beginning of any change happening. Yeah, change takes a long time. Yeah. You can't yeah. just like start change and you expect it immediately. I mean, look at this table, you know. I mean, it's and look at all the produ- I mean, all the productions I've been doing over the years. It's it's getting better, but we still have to point out, oh, it's watched out by a woman. It's still a special thing. It's not like this is the very beginning. And it does feel like camera. But was it's the also last. It's, it's also exciting because I think it does change the language. I think there's actually different sensibilities. I mean, it's not black and white, but I think there's definitely different in fiction. I think some of the female DPs have just brought just different sensibilities and, and just in the storytelling and the, I think it's just but we're at the beginning I, I agree with Jenny but even even in products too like now like there's like easy rig yeah is aware of that that the body shape of yeah women except is that like no rental houses have that really and it costs well, $5,000 $10,000 to purchase women are running the rental houses yet so, also yeah. the guy I don't know any <laughs> female rental house owners no not a one Oh, that is actually a really good point. No, there is one in L.A. Bicini. There's Bicini. Yeah, yeah. But like Genie and like all that stuff, True. don't know a single one. Yeah. I think a lot of this, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is like above the line visible stuff, but it's not, you know. The, the um, yeah. infrastructure. Well, people aren't conscious of it. If it's not your world and you're not thinking about it, then why would you include it? That's all. I used to have these weird conversations with my gaffer. I have known him for 20 years. And I start forcing, because at first I ask, oh, can you include some women? And he said, yeah, I can, but they're not prepared and we need to go fast. And the first year it was like that. And then I realized, I don't care, include it. If it's not prepared, it will be prepared after the shoot. But it was like weird talks. Now he's completely conscious about and he's working with and he's looking for uh, but you need to force it. That's something. Every change needs to be forced. Well, and my point of view. <laughs> but also, how many times has there been like somebody's cousin on G&E or somebody's little brother on G&E that everybody knows is slower and learning and everybody's training and it's okay and nobody ever thinks about it. And that's yeah. not something anybody ever questions. Yeah. But then the idea of like deliberately bringing in someone to the crew who is a woman who doesn't know as much 
is then something people's resistant to. But like, there are often people who are greener on a set, and nobody blinks if it's, you know, the little brother. I hadn't intended this to be the wrap up conversation, but I think it is a good wrap up conversation. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you guys all so much for making time in your Sunday schedule. I really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you me. for the invitation. So that was our first Cinematographer's Roundtable, uh, a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, if you want more, you can check out nofilmschool.com, where we have all sorts of Sundance coverage and podcasts, and we do a regular weekly podcast, um, the No Film School podcast, where we talk about what's going on in filmmaking. Uh, and you can always follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks, No Film School, and uh, look forward to seeing you out and about in the world.